0: I don't know. Canadians are weird. (laughs) Um, No offense. No offense to to any Canadian listeners. We love all of our Canadian listeners. I don't. I've never been there, so I can't. I'm sorry. I delete all of that. Okay.
1: Morning, good day, and good evening, and good night. Good night. Welcome to the Insomnia Report, episode thirty-one. Thirty-one, baby. We passed thirty. Yep. Yeah. We're we're getting there. I don't know where <laughs> there is, but
0: <laughs> up, up and up, up and up. Yes. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you have listened before, welcome back. We're so happy you're here. I'm Margot. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are the two friends and roommates that like to talk about the things that keep us up at night. night. We have a true crime episode for you this week. So, yeah, get out your chalk outline. I don't know. Um, get
1: out your Tic Tacs and string. You know how people like tack pictures to the wall yes. and they like, le- yeah. Like yes. A- the, the do map. people do that actually? or Do they just do it in the TV shows? Do you think? If you are a detective, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> I feel like they have more high tech options I'm these sure. days, but yeah. you never know. I don't know.
0: Sometimes it's like a vision the, board. I mean, sometimes the mechanical methods yeah. are, are better to visualize it. I don't know. True. I don't know. Who's to say? We can. We can find out.
1: Okay, we'll have to dig into that deeper. I
0: have. I'm curious. I'd like to know. I will go ahead and grab the matches. Mm -hmm. Would you like to tell me
1: about your week? Oh, my week. What's kept you up? What's kept me up? I mean, I don't know. Like, everything going on in the world. Mm, There's a lot. It just never stops. And... Do you hear gasoline
0: is the new toilet paper right now? Like, people are hoarding it. Yeah.
1: I've seen pictures I don't know if you've seen these of people with like the clear bags of gasoline in their trunk. I feel like that's a huge safety hazard. Like, did yeah. we not learn just take what you need? Yeah, it's uh, it's something else. Yeah. And everyone I know is talking about the high price of lumber, mm-hmm. too. Yep. So, yeah. Good stuff. Well, I'm glad I don't have a car in the city. Right. So. We don't need it. We're not going anywhere anyway, so. No, we're not. But we both get vaxxed this weekend. Yes, we do. Second dose. Yeah. yeah.
0: Whoa, whoa. So hopefully life will go to normal. I also saw that the CDC said that fully vaccinated people don't have to wear a mask anymore.
1: hmm A lot of people online are skeptical about that. I mean, I'm probably not going to ditch the mask totally.
0: Not, I mean, in public, probably not. Right. Just easier. I don't know. Yeah. Cause then there's the people that haven't, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Things are gonna be really weird after this, but anyway.
1: Yeah, you're right. Yeah. What's kept you up?
0: At work I've I use this platform to try to recruit people to work with us, um, for our campaigns. And we have safeguards to prevent it from send in recruitment emails to people that we reject so mm-hmm. ideally it only sends emails to people that we approve but for whatever reason the safeguards failed and it's sent to like anyone oh my god and well that was incredibly stressful but one of the brands i work on is a like apparel and shoe company and it sent this automatic email to this one person and said hey I really think we would be a great fit for you to work on this campaign like here's the details or whatever and they replied back and (laughs) they said I um review drones I don't (laughs) I don't know how that would be a good fit (laughs) I'm sorry (laughs) oh my god so it was frustrating i mean it was hilarious that instance but the whole situation was not
1: oh yeah that sounds really stressful
0: yeah so Mm. that's kept me up because it it's created a very a a lot of extra steps but it was funny because he's like i don't i don't see how that would be a good fit i i review drones
1: everything about my blog is about drones imagine having a blog about drones (laughs) what a niche that's cool i like i like that yeah go drone dude go drone dude i've never like touched a drone or flown a drone (laughs) i haven't either i've heard them they sound weird because they kind of creep up on you and they're like yeah you know (laughs) that's exactly how they sound i think so (laughs) i should be a foley artist (laughs) you should oh my god (laughs) (laughs) that's my drone sound oh okay all
0: right all right, okay. right. want to tell me about some crimes oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that sounded so scandinavian oh she, oh yeah
1: <gasps> oh yeah here we go <laughs> okay somehow we're back in this pacific northwest and mm-hmm. it's totally a coincidence I not playing this <laughs> i have no idea how this keeps happening so it's been on your mind i, I guess know. i guess something's calling you there i suppose Hopefully not <laughs> something violent. <laughs> One not can hope. Wood. Yes, there we go. Doors okay. are locked, by the way. I checked. Thank you. Yes. This time it's August 1982, and we're in Washington State, Kent, Washington, to be more precise. There was a meat packing plant that backs up to a river called the Green River. Oh, I kn- okay. <laughs> A popular spot for tubing in the summer. One day, an employee at the meat packing plant went out to smoke and saw something odd in the river. Can't be good. And then he called the police. Good. And Detective Dave Reichert of the King County Sheriff's Department was sent to the scene. In the river was the body of 23-year-old Deborah Lynn Bonner. 23. I know. Three days later reichert received another call a rafter in the river discovered another body thinking at first it was a mannequin mm-hmm. why do they always think it's a mannequin i don't i don't know i mean i guess that's you try to associate right. it with not being okay right, like I you don't. wouldn't think i don't i don't know i don't know maybe we would not think it was a mannequin because we spend so much time talking about true crime right it's true detective reichert Left his daughter's birthday party and went to investigate. This body was weighed down in the river with boulders oh. on her thighs and on one shoulder, while her other arm floated free, waving in the current. Ew, 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 ew. Her name was Marcia Faye Chapman, age 31. Oh. While walking near the riverbed, detectives found another body. What? Face down in the grass, it was 16-year-old Opal Charmaine Mills, sixteen, who had large bruises on her buttocks and a ligature around her neck. Detectives had also found a body in July of that year, Wendy Lee Crawfield, but I don't think they connected it quite yet with the others. Mm. Anyway, the police started finding more and more human remains. Over the next few years, mm. dozens and dozens of them, many of them were sex workers. King County, Washington in the 1980s was a popular spot for that kind of activity, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Police knew at this point that there was a serial killer on the loose. Uh, no shit. And What they, <laughs> they, they, gave you that idea? And they dubbed them the Green River Killer.
0: See, like the names are okay. I know.
1: It's kind of weird. After the location where the first victims had been found, they created a task force and a tip line, but nothing probable was coming through. Meanwhile, Reichert, the detective, was losing himself in the case. He worked on it even when he wasn't at work, Mm. and he dreamt about the victims and would get up in the middle of the night to write down notes and ideas. He was terrified that they were letting the families of the victims down and afraid that the perpetrator would kill again on their watch. I, I can't imagine the stress of that situation, I know, especially because they just kept finding bodies, like right, all the time. Yes. So yeah, the killer was very active. Finally, a tip came in. A taxi driver named Melvin Foster called the station and said he had more information that could help them. Ooh, thanks, Melvin. He even said he knew some of the victims. Oh. Apparently, Foster had been in prison and had taken a couple of psych classes there. So (laughs) So he's an expert. He felt he could help the police crack the mind of this killer. Just a random guy? I don't know. Like, the police saw this all sounded a little sus. A little sus. Um... And they even had undercover stakeouts outside of Foster's house like 24-7 because he was a suspect mm-hmm. at this point. But eventually it turned out he was just a bored guy who liked the attention. So uh, they, um, they have those. Yeah. So they stopped looking into him and the bodies kept showing up. Then a strange beacon of hope the task force received a letter from someone else who thought they could pick the killer's brain and lend investigators some insight into the workings of the river man. Mm-hmm. Can you guess who this person was? Melvin? No. Um, Ted Bundy. Yes. Oh. <laughs> You're correct. Ted Bundy.
0: Oh. Was it Ted?
1: No, it wasn't. He was in prison
0: at this point. Oh, I see. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. So, Riker, Detective Riker and his team flew to Florida to visit Bundy in prison. What a time. I, like, not I a know. good time, but geez. But what a time. Like, I can't imagine what it would be like just to be a person living nope. in that time because it seemed like there were serial killers everywhere.
0: Well, remember the statistics from the other oh, yeah. episode? How yeah. it, like,
1: peaked in the 80s? Sorry.
0: Yeah. Peace bumps. Look at that. My goodness. that That's so wild to me.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, so they went to Florida to visit Ted Bundy and uh, see what info he could provide. And he wrote in his letter, he said, quote, don't ask me why I believe I'm an expert in this area. Just accept that I am and we'll start from there. Because <laughs> I- at, at this at that point, I don't think he had confessed. Oh, OK. So Don't ask questions. He just- was like, don't ask me how I know this. But. I know a guy who knows a lot about serial killers. I've heard some things in my lifetime. I don't know firsthand, but... Yeah. Ugh. Apparently, Ted Bundy had read about the Green River Killer and saw photos of Detective Reichert in the newspaper. And, um, yeah. So he kind of, like, tried to give them a profile of this guy, and and he said his tip was that he told investigators to stake out fresh graves if they ever found them because he believed the killer would return to the scene to have sex with the bodies, basically, I, aka engage in necrophilia. Ugh. Didn't um, Ted do that? So, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, based on Ted Bundy's observations. Reichert decided they were looking for a guy similar to Bundy and that gave him hope weirdly enough because they kind of had a better idea of what they were looking for. Thanks, Ted. And um, I guess. Yeah. But so most of the things Ted Bundy told them were actually just things that he did, as you, yeah. as you said. And um one story said that it seemed like Ted Bundy was jealous of the attention that the green river killer was oh, getting boo hoo oh <laughs> god i know but honestly like i had never heard of this really this guy before today oh so wow and but i mean, i feel like ted bundy has more on him just like in terms he definitely of a lot more media like, yeah yeah like i don't know maybe it's just me no no it's not because anyway yeah yeah i don't know okay there were a lot of leads but no major suspects until 1986 when a sex worker told police she'd been assaulted by a guy and she described him to the police who identified him as gary ridgeway they'd heard of him before So they made a tip sheet and assigned it to a detective named Matt Haney who started to connect the dots. He surveilled Ridgeway cruising the streets where the sex workers walked, and then they searched his house and his work locker and his vehicles, but they didn't find anything. So they didn't have enough evidence to arrest him for anything, so they didn't. Hmm is unfortunate and this brought on lots of pressure from the public and the media and the investigative team claims that people stopped calling the tip line because they believed because of this negative attention that they were bad at their jobs and like wouldn't catch him anyway no so everyone was very discouraged and then eventually the task force was disbanded because it was too expensive and they weren't making any progress Mm. then in 1997 it's a long time after I know it's just like I can't imagine how frustrating that would be Mm -mm. to, to not be able to catch this person so in 1997 Detective Reichert was elected sheriff of the county King County congrats And he immediately ordered DNA testing from the crime scenes since that technology wasn't available when they were first investigating in the early 80s. They really didn't have a lot to work with, but they went through a bunch of evidence to try and get DNA. So they rinsed, sorry, this is kind of gross. They rinsed all the fingernails to try and look for evidence. They swabbed the ligatures and yeah, they found some DNA on some pubic hair that they had collected. Mm. So yeah, they got a little bit that they could use and then they had DNA from Ridgeway from a piece of gauze he had chewed on 10 years prior. I don't know what the context is for that but who kept that who thought that I don't, I don't know okay i don't know and they compared the dna uh with each other and so um at this point i don't know when this is maybe a couple years after i don't know how long dna testing takes but
0: like at the time
1: yeah okay yeah detective record got a call it was a match. The DNA linking Ridgeway to three of the victims that they found. So the police started to observe him again as he like drove around and whatever, and uh, picked up sex workers. I don't know why they didn't just like pull him over. Right. I don't. I don't really know. Anyway, but they finally arrested him in November two thousand and one at. The truck factory where he worked, he he painted trucks. Yes. That was his job. Yeah. So he was arrested, and then he was waiting for his trial. And his lawyers talked to the prosecutors and said they wanted to make a deal, a plea deal. They said he'll tell you about 65 murders in exchange for not being put on death row. So life in prison. And they agreed because they wanted to get all of the information that they could out of him, especially because they had so many unidentified victims. Mm -hmm. So uh, Ridgway ultimately gave the detectives details on 48 killings. My goodness. And they took these little field trips where he showed the cops where he left some of the bodies and um, the it was frustrating for the police because they could tell that he enjoyed these little like road trips mm. and he got to relive his crimes. Could you imagine getting the permission slip for that field trip? No, <laughs> <laughs> I cannot. Ugh. Yeah, I saw some video of it. It's just like I don't know. In all of the videos that I've seen of him, he's just very um like calm and unconcerned. I hate that. About so anything. no empathy. Yeah. And like proud of it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they said that he would point to where he left the bodies like with an expression of joy. He was yeah, messed up. Yeah, super messed up.
0: Obviously, but
1: yeah. And through this, they found four more bodies. Mm. And it was worth it for Detective, or I guess at this point, Sheriff Reichert, because they helped more families get closure, what had happened to their loved ones. Yeah, it took him five months to confess everything he wanted to confess. He had never told anyone else about his crimes. He ultimately admitted to killing 71 women. He said they deserved to die because they were out on the street and in court he said his in his statement he said I killed so many women I have a hard time keeping them straight. I picked prostitutes as my victims because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. Some of the relatives of the victims or friends or family members Got to speak at his sentencing and say what they wanted to say to him. Some of them forgave him, which I thought was... Interesting. In- extraordinary because... Yeah. I don't... I honestly... It's unfortunate, but I don't think he cared. Right. You know? I don't think so. Actually, well, so in what I saw, like, video from it, and this one guy said he forgave him, and Ridgeway actually cried. Mm. Um, which was interesting but yeah he was sentenced to 48 consecutive life sentences with no chance of parole meanwhile Sheriff Reichert still struggles a lot with the memories of the victims and finding them he ran for Congress and I think he's still in Congress Mm -hmm. anyway just an aside yeah so who is Gary Ridgeway, the Green River Killer? He was born in February 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm-hmm. He had two siblings. And he had kind of a strange home life. His father was a bus driver who would, like, drive around and complain about all the sex workers on the street. Mm. So the seed was planted early, I guess. And his mother was described as domineering. His parents would argue a lot, and it's suspected that his mother, like, touched him inappropriately. Oh, God. Yeah, he had a bedwetting problem until he was 13. Mm. And his mother would, like wash him after every time Mm. and yeah people think it extended to other areas of his life as well and he yeah he told psychologists later that he had conflicting feelings of anger and sexual attraction to his mother Mm. and fantasized about killing her oh so I, i think that's it seems like where it all began yeah, I would say. Yeah. Learned. Yeah. When he was 16, he stabbed a six year old. What the? Okay. He led him into the woods and then stabbed him in the ribs because he wanted to see what it was like. Oh, did he die? No, no, he lived. Okay. Fortunately enough, but I mean, <laughs> oof. Jeez. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why, I don't know what the consequences were, if there Clearly were any. none. Yeah. He married his high school sweetheart after they graduated from high school, Claudia, and then he joined the Navy and went to Vietnam. hmm So, yeah. And then he, when he was in Vietnam, he, I think, had a lot of contact with sex workers there. Mm-hmm. He was married three times. His second wife claimed that he he put her in a chokehold. But then he became really religious. Okay. And like read the Bible aloud at work and stuff. And would like cry while reading the Bible. Oh. He like, yeah, just went to church a lot and was just like very. Do you think
0: it was like a subconscious guilt? Probably. Like a a repressed thing that's I don't know the defense mechanism but it's I don't know
1: yeah I don't know either I like yeah it's interesting it's very interesting he also wanted his wife to have sex with him in public Uh and in like weird places and then sometimes in places where his victims were later discovered uh so (laughs) I don't like I don't know I'm could you imagine no (laughs) but like like finding that out later I know a place oh
0: no 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 no, no. nope nope yep disgusting oh yeah that is sick
1: Mm mm-hmm Gary's third wife Judith married him in 1988 after they dated for three years they met at a meeting for parents without partners um, He had a son with a second wife, okay. by the way. And she thought he was innocent for two years like oh, after he my. was arrested until he confessed. And then she had to reevaluate she that. She needed out of there. My gosh, I can't imagine.
0: Yeah. Aspe- like, what, 48 people or, or however many?
1: And being yeah. like, there's no way. Oh, my God. I know. She believes he had a split personality, Mm. and, um, yeah, he writes her romantic letters from prison. I don't know if he still does that, but he did, (laughs) Uh, at least when he was first in prison. Icky. Yeah, according to his ex-wives and other exes, they all said that he had, like, a really intense libido. Mm. and wanted to have sex like a few times a day like all the time like all the time Mm. but i mean like all the (laughs) so despite all of this many of his friends and family members were completely shocked when he was arrested Mm -hmm. for this and they said he was kind always kind of strange but like not nothing harmless yeah but harmless exactly it's always the but then all this stuff comes out it's like is that really that
0: harmless Mm -hmm." i'd I'd say no um a hard no actually
1: i would say a lot of red flags here not blaming anyone for anything but just saying looking back i don't know seems a little bit more than strange yeah all right so his modus operandi was to assault the women that he wanted to kill, and then he would strangle them, either with his hands or with some kind of ligature. He told investigators that strangling young women was his career. Choking is what I did, he said, and I was pretty good at it. Okay. I don't have words, no. Yeah, I know. He didn't keep trophies like some other serial killers, and police didn't, as I mentioned earlier, didn't find any incriminating evidence in his house, Mm. but he would sometimes take jewelry from the bodies and leave it in the women's restroom um, at the truck plant where he worked, because he liked to think about someone walking around with a piece of jewelry that they found in the bathroom. (laughs) <laughs> like i don't know okay. okay like like oh they don't they didn't know this is like this oh my is God, what i, found I did this in the bathroom
0: wow what fun. Oh. like oh, but oh. it's
1: actually from a dead girl that i killed like but no one knows i don't know what a okay okay he, I, he I, liked I, that thought I, I don't know
0: okay well i i don't But okay.
1: (laughs) No, me me (laughs) mean I I have to
0: be honest with you. I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan. Uh, No, no. My arm is covered in (laughs) goosebumps just to paint a picture for you.
1: Uh, Jeez Louise. I know. Okay. He, when he was going to kill someone, he wore gloves. He was really meticulous about covering his tracks. Mm -hmm. He would only pick up sex workers if they were alone. And if he thought that he drove too close to the site where he dumped a body, he would get new tires. Oh. He left cigarette butts and gum wrappers near the bodies as like a red herring because he didn't smoke or chew gum. Oh. If if he was like scratched or something by his victims, he would clip their nails before disposing of the body.
0: That was even before DNA, right? Like that's pretty Yeah, smart. I think
1: so, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And apparently, one time when he was scratched badly, he disguised it by, like, putting battery acid on it on his wound. Oh, okay. I know. Ooh. Jesus. Yikes. To be like, oh, I spilled this battery acid on myself, huh? It's not a scratch. Uh,
0: nothing to see here. Oh. <laughs> Just battery acid. Oh, my God. Okay. It, uh, get, it's, it keeps getting worse, in a way. I mean... No, I mean yes. Anyway, just I'm I'm in shock and I this is how I'm <laughs> reacting
1: to it. He said he liked killing sex workers because they were easy to pick up, slow to be reported missing, and if they had any money on them he could steal it. <laughs> okay. So, he seemed to have sort of this like love-hate relationship with sex workers where he obviously hired them all the time, but kind of internalized also his dad's dismay of mm. them and also his whole bible thing that he had going yeah so but like jesus hung out with mary magdalene right and she was allegedly a sex worker so and
0: jesus i i, I have a lot to say <laughs> he would be a very laid-back guy and be like mm. i didn't stutter when i said i
1: love everybody guys exactly anyway Pretty sure he would not be cool with this mass murder thing.
0: Pretty sure he'd be not cool with a lot of things going on. Yeah. To be. Word. H. (laughs) Word. But no, he certainly would be like, excuse me, do not read my book. Right. You cannot. Sir.
1: Get out of my house. Get out of my dad's house. My dad doesn't like you. Mm -mm, Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So, Ted Bundy was right. Ridgway would have sex with the corpses mm-hmm. sometimes, but he said it wasn't because he was, like, attracted to dead women. It was because he didn't... Oh, um, wait. I'm, I'm bracing myself. He said it was less risky than killing another woman, and he didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> like, I can, Yeah. I can't say anything about that. That's just... <sighs> mm Jesus Christ. Yeah. Also, a few times he claimed workers' comp when he injured himself dragging a body into the woods. he would lie and be like, oh, I got this injury while painting these trucks. But no, it was because he was murdering people. My God. Yeah. He admitted that he was tempted to kill his mother, his second wife, and his third wife. But not the first wife. No, I don't know why. Because I think she cheated on him, oh. or something, which you think would make him want to kill her. I don't know. I don't know how his mind worked. And in, in terrible ways, let me tell you. Right, it. he said he also considered killing his son at some point. Okay, so I, it just is a thought that was with Sir? him. No. And. Um, yeah, apparently his second marriage didn't work out because he liked to sneak up behind her in the woods and scare her. Uh, no, it would not work out. Absolutely not. No. And like I said before, he, he also like, choked her once. Right. And he said that one of the main reasons behind wanting to kill his second wife was so that people wouldn't see him as a loser with two failed marriages. Isn't being a murderer worse than being a loser? I mean, you're a loser if you're a murderer, right? right? Like, right? I, I, I don't what yeah. a what a fragile what, like with twisted logic. Me? Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay. Yeah, but he he didn't kill his family because he figured it would be easy to trace it back to him. So, okay. So well, I'm glad good. he thought that one over. Right. I'm glad he didn't kill them. <laughs> Remember how I said they just, like, kept finding bodies all the time? hmm Between 1982 and 1984, he killed at least 42 women. Oh. Like, in two years. It's Ex- so many. It's so many. I I don't know what to say. During that time, he was questioned in 83 because... Someone told the police that they saw a young woman get into a truck that looked like his and then she disappeared. But they questioned him and he was like, No, that wasn't me. <laughs> no, nope, it wasn't me. Okay. Um <laughs> nothing more to do here. And he passed a polygraph, which I think we've discussed is not, not reliable. Credible. No. And then uh Yeah. So he said his secret to success was how ordinary he was. He said, I look like an ordinary person. Here's a guy. He's not really muscle-bound. He's not. He doesn't look like a fighter, just an ordinary John. And that was the prostitute's downfall. My appearance was different from what I really was. That is chilling. Yeah. One of the forensic psychologists who interviewed him after he was arrested said... To have strong feelings of pride in one's career as a serial murderer and then not communicate that to anyone for 21 years is a measure of remarkable discipline. So they were kind of surprised by the fact that he wasn't bragging about it. You know, he was like very ordinary. Like I said, people were shocked that he had committed these crimes, even though he was a little weird. They didn't think he would ever do this because a lot of serial killers want to show off and like brag about what they're doing. Mm hmm. So he wasn't really like that even though he felt that he didn't like express it really. The main question that the investigators wanted to answer was why was he killing people, right? And he also could not answer that question. Apparently whenever they asked him, he was he seemed confused. He said the women he killed didn't mean anything to him. Oh my god. Um And he had a hard time remembering their faces. Also, he killed so many of them. He had no remorse either, really. At least that's what prosecutors said. But one of his lawyers, Michelle Shaw, disagrees. She thinks that he actually did have some remorse. Because she's the one who convinced him to ultimately confess and make this plea deal. She met with him once a week for over a year. And... She said that she told him that his family would always love him no matter what he had done, and that's what made him crack and confess. She said after he confessed, his behavior changed drastically. She said he would break down in tears. He worried about whether the news of his crimes would ruin his older brother's marriage he was thankful that his mother died before he was arrested so that she couldn't learn the truth. And he wanted, if, if if of any chance a book or movie was made about his crimes, he wanted the any money from that to go to the families of his victims. Yeah. Shit. But so, I don't know. Like, I'm not a forensic psychologist. Maybe he really did feel remorse. Maybe he was... Playing a part and wanted them to think he felt remorse. I don't know. Either way, I guess it doesn't really matter because he still killed all these people. I I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I for, I forgot to add that. Um. So when he stabbed that boy when he was sixteen, because he wanted to see what it felt like. What it felt like. He said he told the psychologist he did this because he was thinking about his mother. He said, I thought about stabbing her in the chest or in the heart or cut her face and chest. So he, some psychologists believe that between that and like the, I guess the abuse from his mother, that he would feel this anger and like displace it. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. His reason for killing them would be like to kill his mother over and over, but it was, but through these women that he was killing, kind of thing. Mm. I don't know. Like who knows? It's a theory. No, you know? th- I mean I think that's interesting. It, it makes sense. Yeah, in this context, I guess. Oh God. Yeah. He also told investigators that he was missing something fundamental, something that other people had that he called caring. But when the psychologists asked him to rate himself on a scale of one to five, with five being the worst kind of person and one being the best kind of person, he said a three. Oh, okay. He said, yeah, for one thing, I killed him. I didn't torture him. They went fast.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, well, I guess that's the best. It could have been. No, it's still Mm -hmm. horrible. <sighs>
1: okay. Yeah, All right. I don't know. Jesus. Apparently, at times he tried to portray himself in a good light mm-hmm. when he was being interviewed because he thought that a true crime author would write a book about him. <laughs>
0: I'm glad he. So Jesus. I mean, we're
1: talking about him, but in, I know. But I'm not portraying him. I don't think in the best possible light. Mm-hmm. Sheriff Eichert said that he saw the same qualities in Bundy and in Ridgeway, Interesting. that he doesn't have any remorse and or any feelings towards anyone, including his family. Mm-hmm. So today, Gary Ridgeway is 72, and he is at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like I said, he was convicted with 48 life sentences with no parole and then he was charged for each victim he was charged with 10 years of tampering with evidence so that's an additional 480 years in prison so mm. that's a long time it's a pretty long time I, must uh, say. I, I think he will be dead by then i'm fairly 480 certain. 80 years but <laughs> he claims that he murdered seventy one people. my God, and we I guess we don't really know the exact number because oftentimes they'll confess or be convicted for a lower number than they actually did, like like Ted Bundy, where some think he killed a hundred people, but he was convicted for less than that, obviously. And one thing that's kind of interesting is that one of his victims was identified this year in January. She was 14 year old Wendy Stevens and she was, they had her remains. She she was a skeleton, but they, they couldn't identify her until January of 2021. Wow. So yeah. And I believe, that they identified her through genealogy, like DNA mm. kind of thing, kind of like we talked about before, which is really cool. Oh, yeah. I think that if they keep finding more victims or identifying victims, he can be charged still with more, mm. like, life sentences. Not that right. that would make a difference in his actual sense, but I guess it's more symbolic. But... Mm. Yeah, that's Gary Ridgeway, the Green River Killer. I believe he's mm. the second most he's killed like the second highest number of people mm-hmm. in the Americas. Yeah. And I don't know how I didn't hear about him until like this week.
0: It's that one was crazy. Thank you. oh my god. Yeah. I'm I'm full. Mm-hmm. Like
1: uncomfy. Yeah, I don't know. Just I don't know if you've seen like videos of him, but just yeah. the way he talks about everything, it's just very eerie. Like,
0: it's as if he's talking about like how his trip to the grocery store went. It's just like
1: right, exactly. Oh
0: yeah, like they were out of eggs. Oh yeah, I
1: mm-hmm. murdered her. Like he's mm. like, oh yeah, I, I, I didn't kill him. Oh yeah, then, then I, he's just like I don't know. Ugh. Yes. I,
0: Horrendous. One of my favorite bands. Well, my favorite band has a song called Walla Walla. I wonder if it's about that.
1: So does the Offspring. Anyway, I hope there are better things in Walla Walla than the prison. I would hope, <laughs> so as well. Walla Walla, Washington. Walla Walla. Walla Walla. Walla Walla. I like that name. Walla Walla. I th- I like it too. I've heard about. I've heard of it before. Why have I heard of it?
0: I know in Twilight, they talk about him like briefly, oh really, in like one of the book, like when they're talking about like killers in Washington or whatever
1: oh i I believe it,
0: oh, my God, well,
1: natives of Walla Walla often refer to it in text form as w two w squared. <laughs> Walla Walla is a Native American name that means place of many waters.
0: Oh. Anyway. (laughs) There we go. You learned something new. Mm Hmm. Hmm. I did not know that, though. Well, thank you. What have you got for me? Okay. So, it's November 8th, 2010. Oh. Not another recent one. I'm sorry. Okay. It's around 9.30 p.m., and 24-year-old Jennifer Pon was in her room watching Gossip Girl and John and Kate Plus 8, as you do. Ooh, yeah. Very, very on brand for 2010, I'd mm-hmm. say. And she was chatting on the phone with a friend. She lived in a nice suburb in Markin, Ontario, Canada. She grew up there with her brother Felix, and her parents were Bic and Han, She was a straight-A student, a gifted musician, and she was studying to become a pharmacist at a good school. Her mother, Bic, had just gotten home from line dancing with some friends and family, and her father, Han, was in his bedroom. Jennifer came downstairs to say goodnight to her mom, and then she went back to her room and got ready for bed. Shortly after 10, Jennifer's mom starts yelling for her husband. Three men with guns entered their home. Oh, no. One was pointing a gun at Bick, and then the others ran upstairs, and they pointed a gun in Han's face and told him to get downstairs, and he was brought to the living room. They grabbed Jennifer and told her to show them where the money was. They ransacked the master bedroom. They kept yelling at the family, asking about their money. The men found $1,100 in Bic's nightstand and $2,500 from Jennifer that she had earned teaching piano. One of the men then tied Jennifer to the second floor banister with her hands behind her back with a shoelace. The father, Han, said that he only had $60 in his wallet and then one of the men said that he was lying and he pistol whipped him on the back <sighs> of the head. They then took Beck and Han into the basement. They put blankets over their heads. Oh no. Beck was begging for them not to hurt Jennifer and wanted to be with her saying, where's my daughter? Where's my daughter? And one of the men said, she's been cooperating so she'll be okay. Bick was shot three (gasps) times, and Han was shot twice. Oh,
1: my God. What kind of home invasion is that? That's, like, really weird. Okay, I guess we'll find out. The men then fled
0: the home, saying that they needed to leave because they had been there too long. Luckily, Jennifer had hidden her phone in the waistband of her pants that they didn't know about, and she was able to dial 911 despite her hands being tied. So she was able to like contort her body. So in the 911 call, Jennifer cries for help, saying that she is tied upstairs. She doesn't know where her parents are. She doesn't know what's going on. And people broke into her home, and she heard shots or pops, and she was very distressed. About 37 seconds into the call, you can actually hear screaming in the background, and it turns out it's Han. So he managed to crawl himself up from the basement, barely alive, and he was screaming and he ran outside of the home where a neighbor found him and then also called 911.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Her mother, unfortunately, died at the scene and the father was taken to the hospital. Uh, As I mentioned, he had been shot twice, once in the face and one time in the shoulder. Han was then put into a medically induced coma and he was fighting for his life. Thankfully, Jennifer was unharmed and they found her upstairs still tied to the banister. So this seemed to be a horrible home invasion gone wrong. It was in a nice area. It was one of those cases of nothing ever happens here. Mm -hmm. And so it it shook everyone and police started investigating and they believe the motive was Robbery because the family, for one thing, lived in a nice area and the parents had luxury vehicles, which they believe could have drawn the robbers to their home. Mm -hmm. So the police chief made a statement that said, quote, uh, this was during a press conference. So the home invasion appears to be random in the sense that there doesn't appear to be any known motive for these individuals to have been targeted. And it is entirely possible it may have been a case of mistaken identity. And we won't know that until such time as we are bringing these three individuals to justice. And that was according to the the Canadian Broadcasting Center. I had to remember what CBC stands for. <laughs> um, eight? Eight? Well, in like the interviews, you couldn't even hear like, tell me what that's about. (laughs) It's like, oh. Not like that intense, but you can hear it like every now and and then. It's like, I heard popes. (laughs) Um, So they bring Jennifer in for questioning because she was the sole witness and the victim to this terrible invasion. And when investigators are looking into this, they have a couple of things that they're I mean, obviously, they want to figure out who did this. Mm-hmm. But there's some things that are weird about the invasion, to your point. I have a theory already, but I'm not going to say anything. So for one thing, why would the robbers murder two people by shooting them in the head, but then leave a witness behind unharmed? Mm-hmm. Another thing was the fact that Jennifer was tied by shoelace, which makes investigators question if the burglars were like, Really knew what they were doing, because mm-hmm. if this was a planned r- robbery or if they had like the intent to do harm, they probably would have brought like better means to constrain someone mm-hmm. like zip ties or or right. tape or you know, whatever they do. Not only that, but they wanted to understand how she could have called nine one one when she was tied to the banister. There was also a lot of money that was not found in the house by mm. the burglar. So for one thing, there was $240 in cash in Bic's wallet, which was like in her purse on the counter. And there was $60 in Han's wallet and $20 in Jennifer's and like a safe that wasn't even touched. And mm. as I mentioned, they had expensive luxury cars. So those weren't taken either like the keys of the cars i don't know where they were but they were probably like on a hook like they could have taken them you know Mm -hmm. so jennifer's in for questioning and detective randy slade interviews her and this is how she describes what goes on she said they came in pointing guns asking for money and they told her you know when they grabbed her from her room if you cooperate you won't get hurt she confirms that there was a total of 3 men. She can't really remember what they looked like or what they were wearing, but one of them for sure had dreadlocks and one of them had a Caribbean accent. All three family members were together and then in the, in the living room and then two of the men took Jennifer upstairs so she could show them where Money could have been, which is where they found the money in the bedside drawer. Mm. Um, They ransacked the rooms and everything, and then one of them tied Jennifer to the banister. Then the men took her parents to the basement. Jennifer said that she heard the yelling, and one of the men said, you lied to us, followed by, you aren't cooperating. And then a couple of pops, and then his mom or her mom screaming, and then followed by several more pops. Mm-hmm. So, then she hears the men say that they needed to leave, and when she hears silence, then she thinks it's safe to like reach for her phone, and she makes the nine one one call. So, Detective Slade tells her that he wants to know the logistics of what. Bick had been doing because he said he thinks that when she went out to go line dancing, she was targeted because she had a, a, luxur- a luxury vehicle, and that's what probably drove people in, so she was probably followed home. Mm. He also says that he wanted to check her phone to see the timestamps of everything of that night, and you know if she was on the phone with her friend that she had stated when she was watching Gossip Girl or whatever... Uh, she just wanted – they just wanted to, like, pair it up with – this was, like, standard. So he leaves a room to get the consent form for the police to, you know, have access to the records or whatever. And he comes back with the form and lets Jennifer know, oh, your brother's actually here too. Because he wasn't home because he was in college. Mm. But he had been brought in. I don't know if he was being, like, interviewed. Well, they have to interview everyone, mm-hmm. so – But anyway, so Jennifer was, like, surprised that he got there so quickly because this was only a couple of hours after the fact. Mm -hmm. To this point, Jennifer has been compliant. She's showing, you know, body language. She's very distraught. She is explaining everything to the best of her ability, but she keeps saying, like, everything's all over the place. Like, I know what I – she's flustered, so she keeps saying that she's worried that – it's not going to like she'll she'll remember things after the fact or be Mm. like I should have said that or like remember details and the detective reassures her like hey like if you do remember like I know that you're traumatized right now but the best thing to do is do it soon when everything's fresh. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the form she starts to get a little dodgy and she's like so uh, how far back are you going to go in that phone? Will I be informed if anyone on my phone is contacted? Are you looking at, like, everything? Like, are you looking at photos? Like, are you, like, what are you, what are you doing? And the detective said, I mean, yeah, we're going to look at everything. Um, And we're absolutely going to contact the friend you were on the phone with and look at all inbound and outbound communication. And he also said that this, he's like, you know, this could be used against you if it turns out you're lying about anything here. But she signed it and... The interview ends at 4.30 in the morning. So Jennifer was able to leave, but would later be called back for interviews a few more times. And things would take a shocking turn when some evidence comes to surface that Jennifer or the police were not expecting. And it turns out her father survived. And to everyone's surprise, he remembered everything. (gasps) So this is the story of the Pan family murder. Oh, my God. Han and Bic were Vietnam refugees that had moved to Canada in 1979. Separately, they didn't meet each other until they moved to Canada. They met working at an auto manufacturer called Manga International. They made auto parts and tools, and eventually they met and got married. Jennifer was born in 1986, and Felix was born three years later. As Han and Bic worked manual labor jobs, naturally they wanted to make sure their kids had better lives than they did. And I know it's a stereotype that, you know, Asians get good grades and their parents are incredibly strict and so forth. But they believed that they were to set the foundation and it was expected that their children would work harder to do better.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Han had said quote, Bic and I are making the car parts. I want them to be designing the cars. So they lived pretty frugally, and they kept putting aside money as much as they can for their kids' education, and in 2004, they saved enough money to buy their large dream home, and they even had over $200,000 in the bank. Dang. Dang. So, when Jennifer was four, she started playing the piano. She had a natural knack for music, and she was also put into figure skating, and she had very rigorous training. As early as elementary school, she'd be in practice at 10 p.m., and then when she came home, she had to work on her homework until midnight. Wow. In elementary school. At a young age, her room was. Her room was filled with bookcases of a bunch of different awards and medals and everything. So Jennifer actually had sights for the 2010 Olympics.: Wow. And she wanted to join the national team. However, she tore a ligament in her knee, and that injury oh. ended her athletic career. Sad. Too bad.. Eh, womp womp. Jennifer and her brother were both very bright students. Though the pressure Jennifer was feeling started to weigh on her when she was about 13. She always said that her parents were comparing her and her brother to other classmates, to their peers, to family members. And Jennifer said that she never felt like she was smart enough for them. Mm. She said that she was good at hiding her feelings and she would wear what she called her happy mask. Her parents, especially her father, definitely used the authoritarian parenting style. And there are even articles about a term called being a tiger parent, mm-hmm. which is essentially a helicopter parent. Um, and the term tiger parent was first coined in 2011 when a Yale professor named Amy Chua, sorry if I'm not saying that right, wrote a memoir called The Battle Hymn of the tiger mother uh and it had been used since to describe a parenting style that uses harsh tactics like fame uh, fame fear or shame uh while also prioritizing a family tie closeness so according to an article from good housekeeping tiger parents rank high in shame or shaming techniques but they also rank high in warmth and this is based on a study conducted at University of Texas by Dr. Kim. So tiger parenting utilizes some of the traits of authoritarian parenting styles, but it could be rooted as parental selfish, selfless love for the child, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I want you to have a better life than I did. So the study also showed that tiger parenting is effective with Asian-American or, I guess, Asian-Canadian ca- families, but not for other Americans or f- people with European backgrounds. It just, mm. like, doesn't work as well for them. According to the study, Asian students with tiger parents show a, quote, paradoxical pattern of both uh, higher distress coupled with a high-achievement so mm-hmm. they go kind of hand in hand. But regardless, the PANS had extremely strict rules uh, and expectations for their children. So authoritarian parents, according to WebMD, focus more on obedience, discipline, and control rather than nurturing a child. And if some a child were to make a mistake, it tends to be punished more harshly. And when feedback is provided, it's often negative. Mm. So Jennifer was jam-packed with extracurricular activities or studying. When Jennifer got injured, she took up another instrument, so she started playing the flute. The kids were not allowed to date until after college. In high school, they were not permitted to go to events or even school dances because they were deemed a waste of time or they wouldn't be able to do anything that was considered to be, quote, unproductive.
1: Wow. How lonely is that? I know. Horrible.
0: Further, they would pursue whatever careers their parents wanted them to pursue. So for Jennifer, Han wanted her to become a doctor, but she didn't really have a stomach for it. So he said, okay, fine. You can be a pharmacist. Mm. And Felix would, I think he studied mechanical engineering. So in middle school, she got straight A's and she expected that she would be given the honor to be the valedictorian at her eighth grade graduation. And she was expecting to get a lot of awards for her academic and extracurricular activities. But to her disappointment, she did not become valedictorian or receive any awards, and she was crushed. Mm. When this happened, it sort of damaged her outlook because to her, it was like, why would I try so hard and put like my heart and soul into everything if it doesn't go unannounced? It's like, mm. That's not the point. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So... In ninth grade, her academics actually started to fall. So she was averaging Bs and Cs in all of her classes except for music for, because she loved music. Which again, as I've said before, there's nothing wrong with Bs and Cs. Right. They're great. Right. It's okay to even fail every now and again. You know, mm-hmm. like you you got to do it. But she was so terrified of not meeting her parents' expectations that she would doctor her report cards using old ones or like scissors and glue and copy machines back in like simpler times
1: oh my gosh um
0: to reflect them as straight A's wow so sh- it started out as being justified as you know she was only in like ninth or 10th grade when this started and Colleges only look at grades in 11th and 12th years, so she's like, it's whatever. It's just this one time, but mm-mm, it wasn't just that one time, and it snowballed from there. Oh, no. So her senior year, she actually received early acceptance to Ryers University, and Han wanted her to go to University of Toronto to study, <laughs> to go to their pharmacy school.
1: It's sad that, like, they thought they could control all of that. Right like if like i don't know i can't imagine my parents being like you have to go to this school and study right. this thing like that mm-hmm. sucks yeah it does
0: mm. very controlling i don't know like if she likes music let her do music you know yeah so she got early acceptance but she came to like an agreement with her parents she said I will go to Ryer's for two years. It was like only 30 minutes away. And then mm-hmm. she would transfer. However, it turns out her senior year, her last semester, she failed her last calculus <gasps> class. No. And she couldn't graduate.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: But she was, again, afraid to tell her parents. And she was afraid that they would like, eventually look through old records and find out that she has been forging her report cards for the past four years. Mm -hmm. And instead of telling her parents that she, you know, had the acceptance letter recalled because she couldn't graduate high school, Mm -hmm. she forged letters from Ryers saying, we are giving you scholarships, you have financial aid, you don't have to worry about, like, everything's covered, you know? Like, you don't have, mm. to, everything's great. So, what does she do now? She literally goes to school without going to school. Oh my gosh. She bought used textbooks and school supplies. And when she was supposed to be in class, she would just hang out at cafes or libraries and she would, like, take actual notes. So she could show to her parents, like, look what I learned in biology today Mm. or or to show like she she like bought the textbooks of what she would actually be taken if she were to do the program there. And on the side, she taught piano lessons, which her parents approved of. But on the side, she actually worked at a restaurant Mm-hmm. So after two years, this is still going by oh my like gosh. they have no idea. And her dad says, "Hey, so uh, are you still transferring to University of Toronto?" She's like, "I beg your pardon." And he's like, oh, "You know, we agreed that you would be at Ryers for two years, and then you would go to University of Toronto." And she goes, "Yes, why? Yes, I have been accepted to the School of Pharmacology. That's the one." Oh. Um. And she said like again everything's good you don't have to worry about money and she said I think it would be best if I lived with a friend in Toronto for a couple days and then come home on the weekends and remember how I said that one of her parents rules were no dating until after school Mm -hmm. well in high school Jennifer had the opportunity to go to Europe for a band trip and after lots of begging, her parents let her go. So when she was there, she actually fell for one of her bandmates. Oh. His name was Daniel Wong, and he was one year older than her. And at the point of the trip, they were completely like acquaintances, like fine with each other, mm. but like nothing really beyond, you know, he's your classmate. But one night, they were playing at a venue that I guess – Allowed people to smoke or a lot of people were, like, smoking cigarettes or something. Mm -hmm. And this triggered an asthma attack for Jennifer. And she... It was Daniel that came essentially to her rescue he took her outside like guided her through breathing and made sure she was okay and in that moment she was like yes hello i'm in love with you (laughs) And uh, for the rest of the trip apparently they were inseparable and they kept their relationship a secret because she couldn't date and when like i don't know how it came up in conversation but apparently her parents didn't like daniel because he was filipino and um, I said Pino. Hello, <laughs> hello. He was a Pino. He was Filipino, and she needed to date someone oh. who was Vietnamese or whatever. So they didn't like him. Wow. But like she was like, you know, hypothetic I'm not dating him, but like, what do you? think But like, if I was, but if I was, <laughs> would he? Would you give me your blessing? Anyway, but they kept the relationship a secret.
1: Oh my gosh, she's in deep. Like I know
0: it just keeps it's like a double getting, life. Yeah, exactly. It keeps getting worse. So it, it turns out instead of living with her friend, she said it was her friend Topaz. And instead of that, she was living with Daniel. Oh. And her parents still didn't know about this. And two years go by and it's graduation time, right? Jennifer was able to present her parents with a straight A transcript. Did she ever get her high school diploma? No. She did not. Oh, my God. And it turns out you can pay people on the internet to do just about anything because they hired yeah. someone to create a fake degree for her. And when it came to the graduation ceremony, Jennifer told her parents, oh, we had like an abnormally large graduation size and we were only allowed to have one ticket and I didn't want to pick between you two. So I gave it to a friend. And they're like, what? The f- Jennifer, what the? F- so like when i graduated we were limited but Mm -hmm. like we go to a i went to a very small school but we were still given four right and they're like you only got one ticket to the university of toronto yeah all like that many people want to be pharmacists like anyway
1: apparently
0: i guess so but you know she just had an answer for everything and They were like, okay, what are you going to do? And when they said, oh, like, did you get pictures taken at graduation? Like, she had some reason for that, too. She's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I didn't fill out the form in time or something. Wow. So. Sus. I don't know how. Anyway. So after, quote, unquote, graduation, Jennifer got a job or an (laughs) internship working at a children's hospital and a blood testing lab. But over time, her parents started to notice that she didn't have a uniform. She didn't have a badge. And mm-hmm. those are two things that you need when you work at a hospital, pretty mm-hmm. sure. So Han insisted that he would drive Jennifer to work one day. And when her parents dropped her off, Han looked over at Bick and said, follow her. And Bick ran like after Jennifer and... When she got into the hospital, she couldn't find her, and Jennifer was hiding in the ER for hours. Oh, my God. Until, like, she was certain that her parents left. So, when that happened, Jennifer's parents called the friend Topez mm-hmm. to be like, hey, is Jennifer, like, with you? When was the last time she came to, like, the apartment or whatever? And then Topaz replied, like, she doesn't live with me. (sighs) So Jen is finally confronted by her parents saying, please explain, like, what's going on? And she breaks down and she tells them everything. She hasn't been going to school. She's been living with her boyfriend. (gasps) She hasn't gotten straight A since she was 13. And above all, she's, like, not even technically a high school graduate at this point.
1: I'm not saying that she's justified, but, like, if your parents, if there's, like, that's what happens when you're so controlling, your kids, like, just won't tell you anything. A,
0: a thousand percent. Like. She was in such fear of getting a B. Yeah. That she created this ongoing. Yeah. Web of lies. Ay, ay, ay. So her parents were furious as Right. I mean, yes, right. I agree. I don't I don't think I think both situations are wrong.
1: Yeah, me too. But
0: I would also be mad. It would be different though if if they were paying for like every like because she was like, right. oh like my school's paid for blah blah blah, right, blah, right, blah. Right. like give me ten thousand dollars. Like where's their money going? Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, excuse me. Yeah. No, oh my god. Where did gosh. you get that product bag? Oh my god, mm. I got it from biology. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. uh <laughs> So her parents like felt betrayed. They were furious, but she was given an ultimatum. And if we learn anything from The Bachelor, that's never a good thing. Oh, gosh. So Han said, you can either live your life of lies with Daniel or you can choose your family. So he said, quote, cease your relationship with Daniel or you'll have to wait until I'm dead. Oh, gosh. And she chose her family. So they broke it off with, with Daniel and from there, things got even more strict, if you can imagine. Mm. So she was forbidden to see or speak to Daniel. Her phone and laptop were taken away. She was cut off financially. She had to quit her restaurant job, but she was still permitted to teach piano. And on her car, her miles were tracked um, oh to make sure that she was only going to her piano lessons.
1: Wow. I, I I'm still hung up on the high school degree. Like make her make her get it. Like Oh no, that was my next oh, bullet. Okay, okay.
0: <laughs> she was to enroll in a class to retake calc. Okay. So okay. <laughs> yes, you beat me to it. Okay. Um eventually she could use her phone only when one of her parents were in her presence mm-hmm. and sh- they had the right to check do random phone checks at any time for like any reason and mind you she was 24 at this time yeah you know right so this definitely put a strain on her race ratio- her relationship with uh daniel obviously so they broke it off and he started to date someone named christine oh, no. she was not okay with this jennifer she could not right. handle this especially because this was really the only really like Like, she had friends in school, but she, Mm -hmm. like, couldn't go hang out with them, you know? So She had no, like, outside support. Exactly. So, she started doing extreme things to get his attention. Oh, no. What did she do? These are frustrating. But she said one time when she was home, she, like, the doorbell rang. She answered it. And a... A bunch of men stormed in and they all gang raped her. And Christine was the one who organized it as a warning to stop talking to Daniel.
1: So so she told Daniel this? Yeah. Okay.
0: And then another time Jennifer had received a letter in the mail with a bullet in it as a warning to, again, like, don't talk to Daniel or else. And oh. she told Daniel that Christine had been behind all of this and daniel then broke it off with christine and for a while daniel and jennifer were on and off Mm -hmm. for a while like even if they went a while without talking it it didn't take long for them to rekindle it because like you know jennifer would find ways to Mm -hmm. talk to him or Mm -hmm. or what have you so in the spring of 2010 Jennifer connected with an old high school friend named Andrew. And she was talking about him, about how she felt like a prisoner in her own home and how things were with her parents and especially her dad. And he casually said that he considered, like, killing his own father on a few occasions. <gasps> and he would like to brag about how he would rob people at knife point in the park sometimes. Um, you need new friends. Um... I know you don't have a lot, but that's not the one. That's Mm, not what you do. um, Mm. But this sparked an idea for Jennifer. Oh, God. So between her piano lessons and school, she devised a plan to where she would pay Andrew's roommate $1,500 to kill her father in a parking lot. However, her friend's roommate, Ricardo, like took the money but never killed the father and she like kept trying to call him and be like like where's my money or whatever Mm -hmm. like you took my fifteen hundred dollars and you haven't but i'm sorry fifteen hundred dollars to kill your dad okay anyway (laughs) but he later said that the only money between them was two hundred dollars from a night out which he later paid back and when she said can you kill my dad he was like absolutely not and like mm. he was like no, i not me. So after that like failed attempt, Daniel steps in and they start
1: to plot for months. So wait, so Daniel, her ex, her boyfriend? Mhm. So how did he how, how So wait, so how is he suddenly on board with this violence? Why is everyone on board with this?
0: So <laughs> the the thought was if she could be free from her th- father, her and Daniel could live together, and if her parents died, she would get $500,000 worth of insurance money, oh my God. like a million total, but it would be split between her and Felix. So I don't know why you think you could just, like, ride off to the sunset.
1: Right, and get, like, get away my with it. She's obviously not thinking very much about that. No, no.
0: I mean, her whole life is a lie, you know, but... yeah. So Daniel gave Jennifer a spare iPhone and SIM card that her parents didn't know about and connected her with a friend of his named Lenford Crawford. And his nickname was Homeboy, which I... Okay. I I don't know if that's like a nickname that he gave himself. He's like, yeah, they call me Homeboy, but it's Mm. like no one calls you that.
1: (laughs) How Um, does everyone have friends? I, I mean, you haven't said this yet, but I feel like everyone has a friend who's like, willing to kill someone for money yeah in the story yeah Yeah. okay
0: yeah that's a weird one lenford home homeboy, lenford well i probably (laughs) that was my name no no um it's a beautiful name okay so jennifer asked how much is this going to cost and homeboy lenford said you know, normally it's 20K, but for a friend like you, I'll do it for 10.
1: So he's done it before for yeah. 20K? Oh, Jesus Christ.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so okay. all of them would communicate on and off. And apparently Lenford had like some friends that would help him out. And for months they would be talking about... hey like does tonight work and they're like no no like tonight doesn't work for me i'm getting dinner like (laughs) i can't come kill your family i'm getting food tonight i'm sorry it's just uh, oh my god my god i know um but one night daniel texts jennifer and he says i can't do this anymore i'm still in love with christine (gasps) and jennifer replied you know what call it off with homeboy then and daniel says i'm sorry i thought you wanted this for you so Jen replied, I would have nowhere to go and I don't want to do it without you. Like, I can't murder my parents without you. <laughs> I need your support. If anyone could hear this, that had no idea. <laughs> um. So like they got into an argument and Jennifer was like, I do want this for me. But I also I have nothing without you. So a few days later, Dan texted jen and said i did everything and i lined it all out for you and then on november 8th a text was sent that said quote after work will be game time wow so now we go back to the beginning Mm. i I tried to tease i don't know if i did a good job at it because (laughs) you did that "Eh." was good so the hit happened jen is brought in for interviews and initially they had no idea That she was involved. Like Mm -hmm. they just thought she was the victim of something horrible. Additionally, Daniel was brought in for interviews and he was very like calm, very like, yeah, like Jennifer and I dated like, oh, tell me about her family. Oh, they didn't want me dating her like they she was very strict. And he basically explained like she felt like a prisoner in her home and he was very like chill. Mm-hmm. And they really didn't suspect anything until the end of the interview when the investigator asked, like, hypothetically, how much do you think it would, like, cost to hire a hitman? He's like, I don't know, like, maybe 10000 And to them, they were just kind of shocked at, like, how he could just be so like nonchalant about it or Mm -hmm. like the way they phrased it was like how much do you think it would take for someone to kill someone he's like i don't know like i don't know so that that was kind of like a side eye they were like what Mm. so daniel grew up in a good family like jennifer and he was a pretty outgoing guy and so forth you know the the works like oh he was nice to people blah 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 but he did get in trouble With the law for drugs and he was once caught with half a pound of marijuana in his car. And when he was brought into the interview, he was transparent about like his history about dealing. So investigators then thought perhaps like this crime was related to a drug dealing. Mm. And because Jennifer and Dan were like seeing each other, maybe she was being targeted by like competitors
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and and that's why her family was targeted. So that was one theory. However, so with the first interview that Jennifer did, the one I explained earlier on, she was not deemed a prime suspect, but she was definitely sus. Like, not suspect, (laughs) but sus. But sus. And like, it was deemed something was going on. So she was told that She needed to come in for a second interview, like, just to get more information. So during the second interview, they basically just say, hey, we just want to see if you remember anything else. This is just, like, strategic to figure out more things and to see if, like, the story is consistent. And, like, even with – typically, prosecutors would not interview someone they deem to be completely innocent – Because they didn't want to cause more psychological damage. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, losing your family and witnessing that would be horrendous. But they were like, no, let's interview her again. And a tactic that they did was they told her to explain the situation. And then explain it again as if you're like watching it happen Mm -hmm. as like a third person.
1: And this is actually
0: a tactic that they use to try to like piece together more things Mm -hmm. and i I guess it's i didn't look too much more into that but i thought that was interesting that's interesting um but there's like some like inconsistencies with her story so they conclude like the second interview and something unexpected happened as han miraculously survived after being in a coma for a couple of days And as I had mentioned earlier, he remembered everything. So Han had woken up from a three-day medically induced coma. So he had broken a bone near his eye because he was shot in the face. And there were fragments that the doctors would, would not be able to remove.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: He also had shattered neck bone. Oh. And... So a bullet had grazed his carotid artery, which would have been fatal. Oh my god. But remarkably, it it didn't. Wow. It like grazed it, but it didn't. Like if it had been like a millimeter
1: mm,
0: or lucky. something, wow. yeah. So he also remarked that there were two very troubling details. He recalled seeing his daughter talking friendly to one of the
1: oh my god people.
0: And they chatted softly and, you know, not not like high stakes. And, you know, if if someone comes in and is like, give me your money, I'm not going to be like, hey, like, I'm just watching Gossip Girl over here. Right. Like, can you not? Hurt? Like, oh not not a good time. Also, her arms were not tied and she was just walking around the house like freely with the intruders. Oh, my God. So, Jennifer had no idea that he remembered things, and the police and Han had an agreement that he would not, like, say anything. hmm And Jennifer went to visit Han in the hospital, but he wasn't to confirm that he was aware of anything. hmm They also had some officers attend her mother's funeral, and for one thing, they wanted to pay respects... Another thing was they wanted to keep an eye on people that were there. And they said that Jennifer's behavior was, quote, remarkable because she was bowing her head and rubbing her eyes as if she was crying, but there were no actual tears. Mm. So now it's time for interview number three. And the first two, it was like calm, empathetic, understanding, and I guess playing good cop. Uh, But good cop is no longer there. And they bring in another cop who is, has a completely different demeanor. And after three hours of questioning, she finally cracks. Oh my gosh. So they used a style of interrogation called the read method, which is pretty controversial because it takes the aspect of pr- innocent until proving guilty and kind of like flips it on mm. its head. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I- I'm not going to get too into like how it's controversial, but essentially it will s- make statements and give someone an out. Mm-hmm. So in the conversation or the interview, detective said, you are involved in this. I know that even though like she hadn't confessed. And then he said, there's no question about it. The only question right now is, are you going to keep making mistakes? And then Jennifer replied, but what happens to me? Jennifer eventually admits that she did hire people to come in, but she says that they weren't there to kill her parents. They were supposed to kill her because she had failed Ekman suicide and she just felt so miserable that she didn't want to live anymore. So she needed someone else to do it, but it went wrong. Hmm. And she tried to call it off, but the Hitman like, still wanted his money, which is, I don't think that's how that works. Mm-mm. Like, you get paid when the job's done. You don't, what? Yeah. I, I don't know anything. I don't. <laughs> um. So he also, the cop, before leading to that, like, he would be really strict and say, like, harsh statements. And then he would, like, emphasize with her and be like, look, you hated how you were being treated. Like, I couldn't imagine. And then he even said something like, I I can't believe it, like, took that long. Or, like, something Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just kind of, like, chilling, but, like, making a statement without... Yeah. Because if you were innocent, you'd be like, I didn't do that. Like, what? But she was Mm -hmm. like, okay. Like, touching her hair. But anyway, so she was arrested there, then in there, and then trial was held in 2014. So here's kind of, like, the breakdown of what they figured out. So... It was a red flag because there was no, sign, like, forced entry. So when Jennifer went to say goodnight to her mom, she unlocked the door. Mm. There was also surveillance caught from a neighbor's camera that there was a light in her bedroom going on and off, which would have been, they think, a signal for Mm -hmm. them to come in. And then they caught three men going into the home on the footage. They also deemed that the way that her parents were shot was more so execution style than, like, a random robber because, like, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. Yeah. So it was more of a work of, like, hitman professionals. Mm-hmm. It What also stood out to police was when they re-listened to the 911 call, they realized it was alarming that when you hear Han, like, screaming in the background, Jennifer yells, dad, I'm here, like I'm upstairs or whatever. He just like runs out of the house Mm. instead of going to check if she's okay. He's just Mm -hmm. like, I'm out, like bye. So that was something that they were like, oh, like we didn't catch this the first time. Mm -hmm. So they played some of the interrogation videos um, at the court case and you can watch all, there's like over 10 hours of footage. Wow. I did not watch all of it. I watched some of it, but the videos are critical evidence as well as everything that was in the text messages. So had they not found the phone with the messages or like the SIM card, they may not have as easily been able to point it out, but it was also critical was Han's testimony because when he was shot, he was unconscious. So they thought he died and no one expected. If he did not live, it probably would not have been as obvious. Mm-hmm. So the trial lasted 10 months. It was only expected to last like six. Uh, Jennifer broke down when they described her mother's death because she was, even though her parents were strict, her mother was the one that was a little bit more like sympathetic, like, Mm -hmm. oh, go let her, like it's okay. Or on some occasions when her phone was taken away, she'd be like, hey, like your dad hid it in the drawer, like, Mm -hmm. you know, something like that. Uh, she She didn't want her mom to die. And she ended up being the one that died. Um, So when her father took the stand, he said, I hope she thinks about what happened to her family and that she can become a good, honest person one day. And then Felix also took the stand saying that he is living with the consequences of the crime and he lost contact with friends. He tried to disconnect himself from being a member of the family and, like, what had happened. He was not able to find work uh, or be able to talk about the past at all without painful memories because he, like, was in shock that a family member could do this. Jennifer Pan, Daniel Wong, Lenford Crawford, a.k.a. Homeboy, and two of Lenford's associates were put under arrest for first-degree murder of Bick and the attempted murder of Han. So they were given life sentences. Wow. And no possibility of parole for at least 25 years. It's also... So one article I read said it's a mistake for... The the thing about this case is it, it obviously it got a lot of media attention, but Jennifer Lee, who was a sociology professor at University of California, said with this case, it it's a mistake to attribute Pan's troubles to the Tiger Parenting. So mm. it obviously had an impact, but this was a very extreme case. Right. And a lot of the times it's really... Quote, easy to blame immigrant parents. Mm. So, Professor Lee says that, well, she co-authored a book called The Asian American Achievement Paradox, but she basically said the danger of highlighting a case like this is that it contributes to the misconception that all Asian kids experience the extreme pressure or are mentally unstable. So, that being said, Jennifer's parents were wrong for being as harsh, mm-hmm. but that doesn't justify murder in them. Right. So this one's tricky because you feel bad for Jennifer, but you don't kill your parents, but then right. like you it it's just horrible. All, yeah, all the way around. Everything is bad. Everything about yeah. it is is terrible. So I I don't know, but like Jennifer's parents Lee further says in this article, Jennifer's parents clearly had a role in making her feel trapped, but I think there's a broader discussion to be had about the expectations that teachers, peers, and institutions place on people like Jennifer to fit the stereotype of the exceptional Asian student, mm-hmm. which I think is really fair. Yeah. But she's she's in jail. She'll be there for life. I think she's 35 now.
1: Wow. No.
0: But... It's incredibly sad. It's horrible. It, it's horrible. But the sources that I found were um, one of them was an article written by Karen Ho, who was a reporter for Toronto Life magazine. And she was actually a, a peer of Jennifer. She went to school with her. Oh, wow. So that gives an interesting perspective. Another one was from Oxygen. There's, I guess, like a segment called Killer Couples. Um, okay, and there's also a book called A Daughter's Deadly Deception, and I read most of it, but um, that is the story, and wow. it's a very sad one.
1: Thank you for that, yeah, yeah, that's that's horrible, yeah, all the way oh around. Oh my gosh, so yeah, I hope that. Her brother and her dad have found some peace.
0: They, I think her brother like moved away because he's like, I, c- I can't mm-hmm. be around here anymore. And I think he just wanted to be around where he wouldn't be like recognized or talked about. Um, In one article I read, they were trying to sell the home, but no one wanted to buy the home. Right. As far as Han goes, he he did say... Uh, quote, when I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. Some people say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel like I'm dead. I hope my daughter thinks about what sh- happened to her family and that she can become a good, honest person someday. It's well, so sad. It's,
1: oh ag- my
0: gosh. again, horrible. Like, yeah. everything horrible. I, I don't know. It's, it's a hard one, but. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so those were really heavy. Yeah. Oh, don't forget, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. Um. Y'all matter. Yes, yes. Mm. Well. Yep, we are <laughs> speechless, I guess. We yeah,
1: I don't even know what to say. I don't either, but
0: it's um. it's a lot. But if you want to read up more, we can put the links to the articles in it. The book... A daughter's deadly deception was pretty good. It was short-ish. I mean, it it explains everything in pretty good detail. And I think a couple of like episodes ago, I was on my kick of interrogation videos. Mm-hmm. And there's this one I highly recommend. It's a channel on YouTube, and it's called JCS Criminal Psychology, and the person who runs it will play, like, interrogation videos and he'll stop it and explain, like, the different tactics. Like, mm. he'll be like, okay, so this is something that they do in order to whatever. And then he's like, okay, so based on the body language, this is what this means. It's fascinating. Wow. But the one I watched on Jennifer's was called Jennifer Solution. Yeah, it's just, it's a lot. There's also a, like, two-hour podcast episode from case files it was episode 50 anyway it's um i don't know like what would have happened like in one of the interviews it was really sad because the the prosecutor was like okay what would you have done if if you if you didn't have to become a pharmacist and she's like i'd want to study music Mm. hmm so sad wow like that then I wonder like what would have happened if she was valedictorian like would she not have lost hope
1: right it's like there's so many little things that happen. I know yeah
0: like well, what, what if she just told her parents like she got a B mm-hmm. like what would have happened her phone get taken away like that already happened I don't right I don't know I don't it's, don't it's know. so to me the saddest thing is she feels that she was so ashamed of a B or a C, which are mm. such, at the end of the day, small things. Yeah. And I, it exactly. just, it's so sad. I, yeah. I'm just going to stop talking. It's really sad. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. thank, thank, you thank you all for listening. Uh, we would love to give credit to the artists that have helped us. Our music is composed by Colin Whitlish and music production is by
1: Justin Tomb. And our cover art is by Erica Chase. Would you like to tell them where to find us? You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or send us your own listener report at report at gmail.com.
0: We would love to hear from you. Yes, please. Tune in next time for a wildcard episode. Mm. What will it be? TBD? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? I don't even know. We appreciate all of you listening. It really means a lot. Should you feel so inclined, you can subscribe and like us. And give us a rating if you feel so inclined. Um, let us know how you're celebrating Mental Health Awareness Month. Take care of yourself. Take care of others. Stay sleepy. Get some sleep. Get some sleep. Especially us. You yes. Know, we gotta. It's a work night. <laughs> Oof, We gotta stop Oof. doing this. All right. Um, good night. Good night.